if Plato was struggling with distraction 2,500 years ago, the source of the problem can't be our technology. It has to be a deeper reason. And so what I uncovered was, I think, a lot more interesting and a lot more empowering than I think what you typically hear today in the media. Expanding possibilities, the mindset zone. I'm your host, Anna Malikian, and this podcast is brought to you by my company, Amaze Coaching. Our mission is to support individuals and organizations to increase their impact while avoiding burnout. We do this through speaking, training, and coaching. For more information, visit mindset.zone. Yes, instead of .com, it's .zone. There you can access all the episode notes, links, and other amazing resources, all at mindset.zone. Today, our special guest is Nir Eyal. Nir is an expert in the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. He's the author of two best-selling books, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. The Globe and the Mail call Indistractable the best business book of 2019, and I will argue that everybody should read it because it's really an indispensable guide for our ever-changing modern world. Welcome to the Mindset Zone, Nir. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. And I really was captivated by your book, and I'm so happy that you accept the invitation to be here with us today to speak about it. Because it's so easy in in this modern world full of gadgets and technology that we get distracted. And you specialize in the intersection of technology and psychology. And you see the power of technology in a different way that many people out there. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Sure. So I noticed a few years ago that I was really struggling with this problem of distraction, that I would say I was going to do one thing, then I would do something else. I would say I was going to exercise, but I didn't. I said I was going to eat right, but I wouldn't. I said I was going to be fully present with my family, and yet somehow I was checking my phone. I said I was going to do some big project at work, and yet I was doing everything but. And so I had this fundamental question of why is it that when I know what to do, I don't do it. (laughs) And I started researching this question, first starting with kind of the popular books out there that claim to solve the problem of distraction. And the advice was very similar. You know, it's Facebook's fault. It's technology's fault. Put away your phone. Stop checking email. And that's very easy for a tenured professor to say. Uh, And that's a lot of times who writes these books. But that's not realistic, nor is it helpful for the vast majority of people. You know, if they stop checking email, they'll get fired. You can't do that. (laughs) So I wanted to really start with first principles around what is distraction? What is this problem? Because I think it's a really fascinating question of why is it that despite knowing what to do, we don't do it? And in fact, I wasn't the first person to ask that question. In fact, Plato, the Greek philosopher, 2,500 years ago, asked that very same question. In the Greek, he called it akrasia, the tendency to do things against our better interests. So knowing that this was such an old problem really fascinated me because if Plato was struggling with distraction 2,500 years ago, 
the source of the problem can't be our technology. It has to be a deeper reason. And so what I uncovered was, I think, a lot more interesting and a lot more empowering than I think what you typically hear today in the media and in you know these gurus and bestsellers that tell you technology is melting your brain, it's stealing your focus. I don't believe that tr that's true. I think what's happening is that we are giving it away. And so what I want to help people do is to empower themselves with the agency to choose their life, essentially. You know, the subtitle of my book is Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life, because I don't think there's any skill that's more important than the ability to control your attention. Uh, because whether it's your mental health, your physical health, your relationships, your job, all of these things require you to have this macro skill of the ability to control your attention. Because the problem we face in this century is not that we don't know what to do. We all know what to do. And if you don't know what to do, Google it, right? You don't know how to get in shape. You don't know how to start a business. You don't know anything you want to learn. You can learn. It's all free available on the internet. The problem is not that we don't know what to do. The problem is we don't know how to stop getting in our own way. And the reason I was so excited to speak with you is because a lot of my research uncovered that a big part of the problem is, in fact, our mindset around distraction and how likely we are to believe that it is something that is happening to us versus somebody who believes that this is something that they do have agency and control over. And so I really want to wean people off of this very convenient very satisfying narrative that it's all somebody else's fault, that we are the victims when it comes to distraction, because nothing could be further from the truth. We are far more powerful than these technologies if we believe we are, <laughs> versus yes. what I think some people want to believe, which is there's nothing I can do. The technology, it's so good, it's addicting me. And that's for the vast majority of people. There is some, There are some exceptions, people who are actually pathologically addicted, about three to 5% of the population. But for the vast majority of us, 95, 97% of the population, we're not addicted, we are distracted. Love it. And that is how our beliefs determine the way we see the world and the limiting us or expanding our possibilities. And I love also the emphasis that you give to the power of words and the, the use of images that you do in the book too, because when you're speaking about the Greeks and that, when you are giving the overview in, in the beginning chapters, you have that image of one side is distraction, actions mm -hmm. that move us away from what we really want. And the other side is traction, actions that move us towards what we really want. And the, how can we control that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's very, very important, starting with, again, first principles of what is distraction. And the best way to know if you know what something is, is to ask yourself, what's the opposite? What's the antonym? And if you ask people what's the opposite of distraction, most people will say it's focus. I don't want to be distracted. I want to be focused. But that's not true. That the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction, if you look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction is traction. And when you say it out loud, of course, and if, especially if you see it spelled out, yes. right? Traction and distraction, they're opposites. What's also important is that both words end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action, reminding us that distraction is not something that happens to us. It is an action that we ourselves take. Both words also come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. So traction, by definition, comes from this term trahare, which means to pull, pulls you towards something you intended to do, something that moves you closer to your values and helps you become the kind of person you want to become. Distraction is something that pulls you away from what you plan to do, away from your intentions, away from your values, away from the person you want to become. So 
This is more than just semantics. I think this is very important because I would argue the difference between traction and distraction is one word. And that one word is intent. As Dorothy yes. Parker said, the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. So we need to stop moralizing and medicalizing these perfectly fine behaviors. If you want to watch Netflix, if you want to play video games, if you want to go on social media, why is that somehow morally inferior to watching some silly football game on TV? There's nothing <laughs> wrong with either of them. Enjoy. So stop listening to this narrative that tells you, oh, these things are bad for you. They're melting your brain when there's no evidence that shows this is the case. As long as you use them on your schedule and according to your values, not someone else's. And, and that is why I think you give so much importance and you start in the book with the internal triggers. We have to own our role here, correct? Absolutely. You know, it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility that you don't control your emotions. You don't control your urges. Many things people think you can control these things. You can't. Uh, I'll prove it to you. Uh, think about the last time you had the urge to sneeze. When you feel the urge to sneeze, you don't control that urge, right? Any more than you control your urge to get distracted with email or social media or television or whatever else. You don't control the urge. All you can control is how you will respond to that urge, hence the term responsibility. So when you feel the urge to sneeze, do you sneeze all over everyone and get them sick? Or do you take out a, a, a tissue and cover your face because that's the responsible thing to do? So the first step to becoming indistractable is understanding that 90%, 90% of our distractions begin from within. Now that's very counterintuitive. Most people will tell you, oh, I was trying to work on this project, but then my phone rang or my kids came in or my boss interrupted me or the computer did this, who knows? They think about the external triggers, external triggers. Those are things in our outside environment that can lead towards distraction. But those are only 10% of the source of our distractions. We need to deal with them. They're in the book as well. Yeah. But if 90% of our distractions actually begin from within, we should deal with those first. So what, what is an internal trigger? An internal trigger is an uncomfortable emotional state, just like that urge to sneeze, that psychological itch of loneliness, boredom, fatigue, uncertainty, stressfulness, anxiety, all of these things are the source of the vast majority of our distractions. So whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, we are always going to get distracted unless we know what we are trying to escape when we turn to these distractions. And what we're trying to escape is almost always an uncomfortable emotional feeling. And knowing that we have, we can have some saying in what happened next in the, the response that we we are responsible. We are able to exactly. respond and not just react. And that reminds me a, a very famous quote that I, is one of my favorites. Between a stimulus and a response, there is a space. In that space is the power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. And what you are teaching us, giving us tools is to amplify that space. Like I, I like to say, is to press the pause button that allow us to see that space, to identify and be aware of the stimulus, the trigger, and to choose the response. That's exactly right. So what I want to arm people with are tools in their toolkit, arrows in their quiver, ready to go, so that when they feel the uncomfortable sensation of these internal triggers, when they feel stressed, anxious, lonely, bored, when they feel these things, they can respond to them in a mindful rather than mindless way. 
And so that's that's really the core of step number one, which is mastering the internal triggers or they will become your master, is realizing that all human behavior stems from a desire to escape discomfort. And so it's really about how we deal with that discomfort in a healthy rather than harmful way that allows us to master these internal triggers rather than letting them master us. And going to the mindset of believing that we can do that. That's exactly right. So there's three big ways to do this. Uh, one is reimagining the task, reimagining the trigger, and reimagining your temperament. And so when it comes to temperament, reimagining your capabilities, that's where we really get down to, to mindset. I mean, I'll give you a, a personal anecdote. So I've been a professional author and speaker for over a decade now. And one of the things you don't want as a professional speaker is to have stage fright. And for years, I had terrible stage fright. Uh, I, I loved the writing part, but then when it came to speaking and promoting my work, I found it very difficult because I would get on stage and uh, I would start feeling my heart palpitate. I would feel it in my chest. My throat would get so, uh, dry. In fact, even just describing it to you right now, I start feeling the same physiological responses. Uh, I would start getting sweaty in my armpits and I would start repeating this narrative about who I am, my temperament. You know, I bet you that if I was a real author, if I was a real speaker, I wouldn't feel this way. I'm, I'm no good at this. I'm not cut out for it. I, I'm not, uh, I, I wasn't built for this. And I started giving this narrative to myself around why there was something about me that was fixed, very fixed mindset around why I was having this physiological reaction, which had nothing to do with reality. Yeah. <laughs> right? I was making up a story about who I was to explain what at the time was not explainable to me, which was why was I having this physiological reaction, right? Why, why, why was I getting nervous? Why was I getting sweaty armpits? Why was my heart palpitating? It must be because there's something deficient about me, about who I am. I had cast the die for my temperament. Whereas when I learned about this amazing research of Carol Dweck and other of our intellectual heroes around mindset, I began to reimagine my temperament and I gave myself a different story. So now I still do you know, more talks than ever, but now uh, when I feel those same physiological responses, by the way, which never went away, I still feel those same physiological responses. I still get nervous. I still get a dry throat. I still get uh, my, my heart beating in my chest, but the story's different. Yeah. Now, before I get on stage, I tell myself, oh, you see, my heart is, is, is pumping quickly because it is sending as much oxygen to my brain as needed in order to deliver my best presentation. So I completely changed that narrative. And now I don't respond with fearfulness and anxiety to that physiological response. I respond with glee. I'm happy that my body is responding this way. So this is one of those critical things that any of us can do to reimagine our temperament. Now, how do we bring this back to distraction? One of the things that we hear all the time in the, the traditional media these days is that technology is addicting everyone and it's hijacking our brains. And you see books and gurus talking about this because look, you know, the first rule of, of journalism school, I went to journalism school. The first rule of journalism school is if it bleeds, it leads. Yes. And so the media wants to scare you. And so by telling you these lies that we're all addicted, that it's hijacking our brain, they are building a temperament whereby people are learning helplessness. You're, we're telling ourselves a story. Well, I'm, you know, I keep using technology because I'm addicted to it, right? Well, addiction, the word addiction comes from the Latin addictio, which means slave. Wow. So when we believe we are enslaved, 
when we believe that our brains are hijacked, hijacking is what those bastards did to us on 9-11. Yeah. It's not, oh, I like to play Candy Crush, mm-hmm. right? But we start believing this. It becomes part of our temperament. We are addicted. It's who we are, right? And that's when we teach people helplessness. And so what do they do? Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's very analogous to, I think, what we see with distraction. Another quick uh, thing that that's worth mentioning uh, that, I, that I dug into was the research around ego depletion. Mm-hmm. So ego depletion is this idea that our willpower is like charge in a battery or gas in a gas tank, that we deplete our willpower. And this idea got um, some, some good amount of popular press for a while. Uh, and, and the idea, again, is that you, know, you, you run out of willpower. You run out of the ability to make good choices, uh, things that require will, uh, because you're, you're just spent. And, and I mm-hmm. would tell myself something very similar. You know, after work, after a hard day, I would come home from work. And I'd say, oh, that was such a tough day. Uh, I, I, I deserve that pint of ice cream and I'm going to sit on the couch and eat it because I, I can't make any more good decisions. I'm spent. Yeah. Well, it turns out that even though this idea got a lot of popular press, uh, some people had suspicions. And one of the researchers was our, our mutual hero, <laughs> Carol Dweck, who did quite a bit of research around ego depletion and realized it could not replicate, that these studies that proposed to find that ego depletion is that your willpower is spent like gas in a gas tank, these studies couldn't replicate. So there's a lot of doubt. And and most psychologists believe today that ego depletion doesn't exactly exist the way we thought, other than in one group of people. There is one group of people who really do exhibit ego depletion. They really do run out of willpower, like someone would run out of gas in a gas tank or charge in a battery. And those people are people who believe yes. that willpower is a depletable resource. Going back again to, to mindset and how we we imagine our temperament to be some way. So if you believe, oh, that's it, I'm incapable of making any more good decisions or tapping my willpower reserves, I'm spent, you will act in accordance to that. Yeah. So that, you know, so much of, of, I think, how we behave is tied up to our limiting beliefs. Yeah, and it's the self-fulfilling prophecy becomes exactly. a part of the real. And but it's fascinating because, and it's one of the things that I appreciate in your work is that you dig, you really go to the nuance of things. Because yes, there are research. One study doesn't prove we have to have other studies that shows the same results and be able right. to see that nuances and maybe there is a different explanation that explain that and something else that shows in another study. So it's this continuous learning that is so important. And I love that, uh, yes, you speak about this and uh, creating this awareness. And then you speak about uh, the, so if we create uh, the time or uh, create ways of not getting distracted, then we have to make time for traction. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So the first step to becoming indistractable is mastering the internal triggers so they don't become your master. That's step number one. Step number two is making time for traction. So traction, as we mentioned earlier, is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do, things that you do with intent. Now, uh, one of the, the key learnings for me in writing the book, which, by the way, took me five years to write. Why? Because I kept getting distracted. Again, I wrote the book for me. <laughs> I needed it more than anybody. And so it wasn't until I learned these techniques that I could become indistractable. Today, I, I think I am indistractable uh, because I finally learned these techniques. But it took me a long time to write the book because I wasn't I didn't know these techniques yet. So it took me a long time to, to, to uncover them. And one of the things I uncovered 
was perhaps the most widely studied time management technique in thousands of peer-reviewed studies is called uh, setting an uh, implementation intention. An implementation intention says that we plan out what we're going to do and when we're going to do it. Very, very simple. And what this led me to was this realization that you cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. I'll say it again. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted mm. you from. So if you look at your calendar and you have white space, right? Just no plans. <laughs> what did you get distracted from? <laughs> yeah. You can't say you got distracted unless you know what you got distracted from, which means unless you are retired or a child, you have to plan your day. Because that's the only way you know what is traction and what is distraction. Traction is whatever you plan for with intent. Everything else is distraction, which, by the way, doesn't have to just include work. I want you to plan time for reading or video games or Netflix or whatever it is you want to do. You can do anything, but do it with intent. Do it with forethought. Sit down and ask yourself, what are my values? What are values? Values are attributes of the person you want to become. So then it's up to you to decide how much time you're going to spend to turn your values into time. And so by doing that, by having a, what's called a time box calendar, you will finally understand for the first time, what do I have to make trade-offs around in order to live out my values? How much time do I want to spend with my family? How much time at work? How much time on myself? And by doing that, you can finally know what is traction and what is distraction. But that's impossible to do by just going about your life and then complaining that you did something you didn't intend. You have to sit down and plan. Now, this takes me, now that I've done it for a few years, maybe 10 minutes a week <laughs> to make that time box calendar. But let me tell you, it is a life-changing practice. And it's the clarity, because like you are saying, if we are not clear about what we want to do, then I would say it's difficult to resist or even to get... Uh, so um, when we have the clarity about the values and we express that values in a time, I would say in the way that we are planning our week, our days, then we are changing the dynamic. That's right. That's right. So it's really about intent. And so we're not going to medicalize and moralize and say, oh, this behavior, good, this behavior, bad. It's what do you want? Right. And as long as it's planned for the day before, enjoy it. You know, so many people out there have never experienced what actual leisure feels like. You know, part of the what I call the tyranny of the to-do list, which I, oh, yes. I you know, I'll tell you, we, we I don't know if we have too much time to talk about today, but you know, what most people do around using to-do lists, that's one of the worst things you could do for your personal productivity. Because to-do lists are limitless. You can always add more to a to-do list. So even when you come home and you just want to relax, you just want to hang out with your family and maybe watch a television show, you feel guilty because of all the things you still haven't done on your to-do list. Yeah. And so with a time box calendar, you don't experience that because on your calendar, it says watch TV and that's fine. Do it without guilt. There's nothing wrong with going on YouTube or Netflix or whatever it is you want to do as long as it's planned with intent. And th th that is the thing. Uh, there is a quote uh, regarding to-do lists that I absolutely love is that our to-do list always going to outlive us. We are not mm. never going to have time to do everything that we put in the to-do list. And that, I would say, gives us the, for me, gives me perspective. And mm -hmm. then is that what I intend to do now? And I think another thing that you are speaking here that is so important, we need to make time for rest. We need to make time to enjoy we need to make time to play we need uh, it's important to make time to fun 
uh, because otherwise the, the, we are just perpetuating a cycle of burnout. Right, right. And that's why to-do lists are so terrible because there are no constraints. So you're never forced to make trade-offs. Whereas with a time box calendar, and I teach people exactly how to make one of these, it's very easy. To do that, you're forcing yourself to make trade-offs, right? It's really easy to say, I wish to write a novel and I wish to start a business and I wish to have wonderful relationships and I wish to have a healthy body. But if you're just, if they're just wishes and they don't have a place on your calendar, they're going to turn into stressors because yes. all of the things you still haven't done, yes. right? You can't outlive your to-do list, but you can live each day as you intended. And that is a feeling I really want to give people to go through your day and say, wow, I lived my day according to my values. I made the trade-offs that were important to me. You can only do that when you become indistractable. I love that. And then just very briefly, there are two mm -hmm. other elements that you speak about that is the external triggers uh, and the prevention of destruction with PACs. Can you very briefly right. go over them? Sure. So again, step number one, master internal triggers. Step number two, make time for traction. Step number three is hack back the external triggers. And so this is where we get into the the the, the nitty gritty of how do you hack back your phone? How do you hack back your computer? That's kind of easy stuff. I don't spend a lot of time in the book, maybe one page each. What I do get into is the distractions that we don't think we can conquer, which take up a ton of our time. For example, meetings. How many meetings are called superfluously? How many Emails, do we never need to get or send? So I walk through systematically all of these external triggers. Kids, right? If you work from home, what we love our kids to death, but they can be a huge distraction when we need to work. So what do we do about all these external triggers? So I show you step-by-step step how to hack back each and every one of these external triggers. And then the last step to becoming indistractable is to prevent distraction with pacts. Pacts are the firewall against distractions, the last line of defense. And there are three kinds of pacts price packs, effort packs, and identity packs. And the identity pack is the one I think you're most aligned with because yes. when it, it turns out that when we form some kind of pact with ourselves about our identity, when we begin to identify ourselves as a noun rather than a verb, we are much more likely to reach our goals. Now, what does that mean? There was a very famous experiment where they called people and they said, are you planning to vote? That was one condition. Or are you a voter? Very simple change. One is noun, are you a voter versus verb? Are you planning to vote? And it turns out that the people who were asked, are you a voter, were far more likely to actually go vote. And so what this implies, and this actually goes back to the psychology of religion, is when we have an identity, when we call yes. ourselves, for example, a devout Muslim, doesn't debate with themselves, oh, should I have a bacon sandwich, right? A devout Muslim does not eat pork. It is who they are. Right. So when you have that identity, that moniker, whether it's I'm a vegan, I'm a uh, whatever, <laughs> when you have a moniker, you become much more likely to make that pact with yourself and do what you said you're going to do. Hence, that's why the book is titled Indistractable. <clears throat> Indistractable is meant to sound like indestructible. It's who you are. It is an identity. And is it so strange to say, you know what, I don't respond to every ping and ding uh, within 30 seconds. That's not who I am. I'm indistractable. Or I do certain practices that maybe they're a little unusual, but that's who I am. I'm indistractable. Is that so different from someone who says, I choose not to eat meat because I am a vegetarian? Not so different. And so that's really the movement we need to create. We need to create this movement very similar to what was done for something far more addictive, which was cigarettes. So I remember in the 1980s, when uh, uh, back when I grew up in the early 80s, everybody had an ashtray oh, in their yes. house. Whether you smoked or not, 
everyone, everyone. It was rude not to have an ashtray in your home because when people came over, they just expected to be able to smoke in your living room. Today, you wouldn't imagine someone would yeah. do that. That would be incredibly rude for someone to light up a cigarette in your home. And I remember when my mother, uh, someone came over to our house and my mother threw away the ashtrays one day. And when someone was about to light up a cigarette, she said, no, 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 I'm sorry. We are non-smokers. If you would like to smoke, feel free to do so outside. Outside. And that, and that identity of saying we are non-smokers, you know, that's different. It's a little weird. And, and the person was shocked. Her friend was, how could you tell me to go smoke outside? Of course, now it's the norm. So we have to do that with our technology as well. We have to proclaim I'm indistractable. That's who I am. I'm not going to go to a lunch and and uh, use a device or uh, be okay with someone using their device in front of me if we're together for a meal, right? That's that's my culture, right? That's my identity. And so these identity packs can be very, very powerful uh, when it comes to becoming indistractable. Love it. Love it. And goes to the beliefs, becoming core beliefs and becoming part of our identity. Love this. So uh, we are running out of time here today, but how can people, besides going and get the book and read the book or listen in Audible, that is a great, uh, you did a great work with Audible, uh, audio book. Uh, how they can learn more about you and, and about your work. Sure. So my website is nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name. So that's N-I-R and far.com. And if you go to indistractable.com, there's actually a free 80-page workbook that you can download, completely complimentary. We couldn't fit it into the final edition, so we decided <laughs> to give it away for free. And that's at indistractable. That's spelled I-N, the word distract, A-B-L-E, indistractable.com. Yes, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Expanding possibilities. The mindset zone. Thank you for listening. And remember to follow this podcast. And if you're listening in Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. That really helps us spread the word about the mindset zone. Also visit mindset dot zone yes instead of dot com is dot zone there you can find amazing resources and more information about my speaking and how i support purpose-driven individuals and organizations increase their impact while preventing burnout as always i'm so grateful you are here expand what's possible for you for the ones around you, for the world.